Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary, Episode 78, Zack Snyder's Justice League. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Mosaic. I'm Doc, and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and look forward to the future while learning from the past. This episode, so many questions and the start of some answers. Come with me on a journey of discovery into Zack Snyder's Justice League. This show dives deep into DC Films for answers and insight as we celebrate the films that give us so much. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC Films and who love to chew their food. My friends, we've done it, we've seen it, and there's an endless amount to break down and discuss, and as always, I am overwhelmed with all the possibilities. But before this episode is over, we'll answer all your apocalyptian questions, from how Darkseid lost the location of Earth, to why the mother boxes aren't immediately tied to the Defiance, and so much more. But we've got to go over my impressions, disclaimers, and approach to get there. It's a veritable feast to devour, content stretching hours and hours. So... Zack Snyder's Justice League is art. It's epic, emotional, timely. It's gorgeous, stylized, meaningful, and massive. It's personal, specific, satisfying, and acclaimed. It is good. It is now. It's loved and liked and more than worthy of it. It's powerful, effective, intense, and long. It's beautiful, bittersweet, brilliant, among the best of the best, an absolute gift, a miracle, and I loved it. I just can't wait to explore and explode all of those words, but that isn't this episode. This is just an early reaction followed by an analysis, and in future episodes we might get into those sentiments and emotions some more, but this is a defense for a film that doesn't need it, to be followed by our deeper dives at a later date. This film is better than it has any right to be, delivering so much good on an absolute scale, but roughly hewn by comparison in some places where the limitations of time, budget, and pandemic are evident in small ways across the film, which is still miraculous in almost all regards. Doubtless, these are insignificant when A.B. tested against the theatrical release with Cavill's mangled upper lip and all the hasty compromises that contained. But having let that version fade from view and memory, to me, Justice League stands against the magnificent Man of Steel and the breathtaking BVS, I watched them right before I saw JL for the first time, which is somewhat rougher in ways by comparison. It lacks the full live orchestration, has some rougher CG and some evident repurposing of past footage, and maybe some Sophie's choices made in the moment to be re-evaluated over time given opportunity. When asked when it was pencils down, Zach replied, It was funny because the schedule made it happen. Thank God if this movie was due to release another month or two, we'd still be working on it, I'm sure. So uh, yeah, we kind of got, I mean, thank God, you know, because it put us up against the clock. and It was cool. It, it was a nice bit of stuff. I don't think we'd ever would have stopped. I mean, not to say we didn't have any oversight. We had the budget. We had these other things, constraints of COVID. You know, there's a lot of things that did kind of keep us in the box, thank God. But, you know, as far as just me doing what I thought was cool, it's 100% that. 
<laughs> I love the attitude of embracing the limitations as part of the art, all of which is to say it's an incredible product of its time and this moment, an incredible depiction of now, and that context only enhances the film many fold, something so powerful that it's even pierced the perception of the mainstream in their hardened hearts. Even removed from that context, we received more in absolute terms than ever before, given the scope and the magnitude. But it isn't as perfectly polished in every regard as the prior films. Still, this fits into the overall progression of the films. While Man of Steel was documentary perfect, real, and objective, BVS is more personal, stylized, and dreamlike, and JL is the most subjective, stylized, and fantastic of them all. The very first scene is an invitation into a more dreamlike sensibility, to loosen the logic a little and let it go down a more mythological path. Think space opera or fantasy epic and less hard sci-fi. Asked to sum up the film in three words, Zach said, I would say epic space opera. It's like an opera or it's like a space opera, you know, we always... We saw a similar progression from the vintage noir of Bruce Timm's Batman the Animated Series, a completely specific and immersive take carefully crafted, but too constraining for the continuity to be. By the time the DCAU appended on Superman, Batman Beyond, and Justice League Unlimited, it had absolutely earned that last label, able to go wherever the comics could, outside the confines of Batman TAS. Yet, both are beloved because it was always executed with artistry and intention. That shift away from convention is found even in the aspect ratio. Metaphorically, we went completely sort of horizontal and then... We were horizontal and slightly vertical, and here we're like more vertical. And I think it's all about that the story is all about sort of rising up and sort of finding yourself and becoming complete. And I think that's kind of what the aspect ratio is trying to do as well. The narrow view to a more open, full spectrum view, everything the camera took in, but beyond the visual, everything the filmmaker has to say in its toolbox from the visual effects to slow motion to frequent needle drops is on display. We are literally getting a vision and more of it. And that progression asks us to open our minds along the way, taking us from the real to the melodramatic to the fully fantastic, progressing from the logical, contained, and orderly to the complicated, messy, and real in just a different way. It's a film that shows and has faith in its audience. Instead of being chastised for who he was as a filmmaker, Justice League is Zack doubling down. And it's glorious, because so many finally finally get it. And this film fills me with gratitude that the film exists at all, that it was released, that it was released in this way and to this degree, that it was received so well, and that it's inspired whole swaths of critics and commentators to reevaluate the previous films in a new light. And that's led to deep and thoughtful analysis from new voices, that's led to new fans, new emotional access and connection to these works, and in turn, access to and understanding of ourselves, our attitudes, our capacity for change, our resilience, our mental health, and our communities. And I'm getting ahead of myself, but I can't help it. I'm just so excited. The incredible impact of this meta alone is so powerful, so moving, so meaningful, that I just have to thank the studio for embarking on this endeavor in the first place. The film wouldn't have been possible if they hadn't allowed their intellectual property to be filmed for such a bold and unique vision from the beginning. And however they may have stumbled since... If not for that allowance, that budget, that brave leap of faith, we would not have the raw materials for the film today. And without their future cooperation, we won't have the opportunity to see this boldness again. Hashtag Restore the Snyderverse. I can't give up hope. It's all I have.
we have to thank the filmmakers, everyone from the man on the marquee, the Zach in front of the league, to his producer partner beside him, to the writers, actors, cinematographers, and score, the whole machine of filmmaking, which in this case includes you, yes, you, the fan, who cried out for this, loudly, consistently, sincerely, and at cost, in a way that a massive multimedia corporation had to notice and turn. From Fiona's first spark pulling at Zach's heart, to faithfully forwarding the movement, to generously remembering those early supporters, to big celebrity endorsements, and the mainstream outlets just tuning in now. It's been a flood of emotions and gratitude at this accomplishment. Just incredible joy at seeing a long-term dream and investment pay off. That's it. And look upon this moment. Savor it. Rejoice with great gladness. Great gladness. Remember it always, for you are joined by it. You are one. Under the stars. Remember it well then, this night, this great victory. So that in the years ahead, you can say, I was there that night with the king. For it is the doom of men that they forget. Frankly, I'd be happy just to sit back and listen to all the academic discourse on these works at this time. But I owe you, my friend, my take. Even if I can't summon all the same superlatives that you've seen elsewhere everywhere, in that sense, I hold opinion in somewhat low regard. Because if I cared about it then, I would have collapsed under the weight of the negative ones against these works that I love. And so I'm not looking to rank or review, but to give you my unique view and dive deep and chew. And with four hours of film, even as delicious as this, it's a lot to digest. While I can literally recite Man of Steel and BVS line by line, reverse storyboard it shot by shot, I am far from there with Justice League, and I don't think you're going to wait for me to get there. So this synthesis is partial and initial, and of course will deepen with time and attention. When I look back at my first BBS episode after release, I had to laugh at all the doubts I had that it was a masterpiece, because I was still piecing together the puzzle, still excavating the layers. And I laugh because I'm there again with Justice League. But this time, I'm equipped with new tools, new lenses, new growth, a more open mind, and a greater appreciation that my journey through Man of Steel and BBS have afforded and enabled. The me that took in Man of Steel in 2013 would not have been able to see Justice League in 2020. 21 the same way. <laughs> I'm so excited to be on another precipice of enlightenment and engagement again. Zack Snyder's Justice League is sincere in the belief that we'd one day join in the sun, that all the criticism, rejection, and struggle was worth it, that one must be true to their vision, to themselves, if they're to be true to the world. And so, as we usually do, we start with the logic, because that's being true to myself. <laughs> The film is, on that level, a difficult client. There is a powerful temptation to retreat to the rhetoric of it's just a movie, because it's so easy to use genre as an escape hatch and say space opera isn't intended for scrutiny. We want to put aside our reason and reality, laws and logic, consistency and science. And there are times that that's the only solution, because if you start pulling at the threads, you might find there's no sweater left. But take a leap of faith with me that much more of this film makes sense than may seem to the nitpickers and critics looking to condemn a work. At a dinner party, I heard a guy say, I believe everything happens for a reason. And I just wanted to smack him in the face, you know? <laughs> and he'd be like, what the hell did you do that for? <laughs> you tell me. And 
while confrontational at first, I think it provides a powerful exercise in excavating the layers of a film that's as rewarding for the rational mind as it is for the spirit and soul. Let's hope that instead of a nest of arbitrary inconsistencies, instead we'll find something thoughtful, deeply realized, and immensely satisfying in the end. While it's an act of faith, I don't think it's a blind one. These films have already earned the benefit of the doubt, and we know that Zack's approach to filmmaking is layered beyond belief. Take, for example, Superman's black suit and the many, many layers of analysis possible. Purely aesthetics, how does it look? On an execution level, we can talk about how it was done. Going behind the scenes, we can discuss how Snyder planned for this potential rebellion from the start and what it says about him or what it means. Within the story, we can talk about the psychology and decision-making. We can talk about the logistics of the suit's availability. We can talk about the lore, history, and culture going back to Krypton. We can talk about the pseudoscience of the suit and its utility. We can talk about the symbolic meaning generally, culturally, or specifically. So what the color black signifies with respect to death, or what a black suit means with respect to the death of Superman event, or what the black suit means to filmmaker Zack Snyder with respect to the writings of Robert Bly. And all of these layers get further developed by the surrounding context, like the fact that Zack only viewed this cut in grayscale for years, even publishing a gray edition, which could inform an argument that it's his personal Superman being brought to the screen again. And the Discussions can go into differing or opposing views, and all of that, from the aesthetics to the meaning and choice of black to how it was viewed, etc., and all of this is just the discussion and the selection of the suit. So, of course, you're free to interact with a work on the most superficial level to ignore and hand wave all the discussion you don't want to have, the depths you don't want to delve into. But your choice to dismiss does not invalidate those diving deep. Exploring all these avenues of analysis and interaction is a way of appreciating the work, getting the most value and insight out of it. What I'm trying to do is make you just aware of the kind of big strokes, the big moves I'm trying to make with these guys. And that in every case, there's something underneath that you have to kind of, you can go on, you can skip like a stone across it if you want, and that's fine. But if you want to take a deep dive, I'm here for you. We can go, we can go. So let's go. For my part, I'm completely excited to get into the symbolism, themes, and commentary eventually. But I start with the logic not because it's the most important or only valid layer. Frankly, it's because most moviegoers have been trained to engage with films on this level alone, to pick apart the plot and pose a lot of questions, but not really look for the answers. And those questions stop them from engaging any further. I think we can do better. I think the enormous success and acceptance of something like Endgame, filled with, let's just say, questions about its internal consistency has forced pop culture to relegate quote-unquote plot holes to the dustbin of analysis and downgrade it as a form of engagement, else it collide with our wide appreciation of such films for some uncomfortable cognitive dissonance. While a decade ago, online film commentary was obsessed with plot holes, logical consistency, nitpicks, and continuity errors, in recent years, I think we've seen a real mainstream shift to other modes and layers of engagement. The emotion, the execution, the artistry, the philosophy, psychology, symbolism, and literary merit of works beyond the but-actuallys and stereotypical nerd correction, as comic book culture has become just culture without prefix, and as our critical literacy has increased with YouTube film school and internet thought pieces. Together, we get to appreciate it as you would a piece of culture in general, so more meaningful engagement beyond the singular dimension of plot or consistency, features not even found in other art forms, or of particular currency even in this film. 
which from its very first shots lets you know that we're going to be more surreal, more fantastic, more stylized and supernatural than ever before. It's a license to loosen the logic, but not abandon it altogether. And this investigation takes on faith that even in this relaxed approach, we'll find lots to love and interesting insights in our application of logic. So this is simply to address a lot of the big ticket questions, get those out of the way so we can talk about the actually interesting stuff beyond it. I'm less worried about the nitpicks, which we might talk about from time to time. One of the benefits of logical analysis is that it's somewhat independent. 2 plus 2 equals 4, whether or not Zach weighs in on that or not, right? <laughs> Which is why, for this axis of analyses, I consider the filmmaker a persuasive authority, but not the final word. It's tempting to turn over our reasoning to word-of-God answers from Zach, but the independence of logic means that a work should be consistent with itself, its rules, its reality, irrespective of Zach's answers or opinion. Additionally, as filmmaking is a collaborative process, excavating these hidden or implied structures or ideas may reside with one of the other filmmakers, even if the overall Overall vision is Zach's. So the person who thought through the logic, backstory, the undercurrent may have been a writer, a producer of that prop, a stunt choreographer, a visual effects artist, etc. etc. There are worlds and rationales underneath the elements of this art that are potentially unknown even to Zach. It's been a pleasure, for example, to listen to Hulkenberg spend 40 minutes expounding on a piece of score. And for me, this is a very special track because it has so much of me in this track playing. And that's why, for me, a very personal track. Or to listen to Citrone share what he brought to his performance of Steppenwolf or the Bat. Or perhaps listen to a prop master's intentions. I create paper props for movies and television. Part of what you need to figure out when you're making a paper prop is the backstory of the piece of paper. The scene might involve an actor reading three lines out of a letter, but you have to figure out how old is it, what kind of paper is it made out of, who's signing it, what does their handwriting look like, what kind of ink are they using when they write it, what kind of pen are they using. And then, because no letter is ever three lines, you have to write the rest of the copy in the letter. Depending on what I'm making, a project can take, you know, weeks, months. Every page is filled out, every book has text on it, and pictures. Every paper in the file folder is, is a real document that's all filled out and created. For example, for the Book of Secrets, they said, just come up with secrets. So I said, okay, well, let's do all these crazy conspiracy theory things. Then there was the research into those specific things. So you have to find all that, figure out how to recreate it convincingly. It was a huge undertaking. It took about four months to really build that prop. And it's just communicated in a split second in the scene. These artists all have their own minds and motives worthy of uncovering as well. Not to mention even Zack's headcanon is not even canon per se. In the following clip, Zack discusses with Kevin Smith his thoughtful approach to backstory. So you could have just been like, the codex, dude, let's move on. But you actually put some thought into it. Is that what goes on in pre-production? It's like, look, we better be watertight. I mean, you know, at a certain point, you got to suspend the window of disbelief because it's about a guy who flies, but you like no, to be watertight I, with your logic. I'm really into that kind of stuff. I've, I always feel like, oh, it's cool if like our mythology is kind of bulletproof, you know, that you have. You can create a backstory for anything. You know, actors do it all the time. Create a backstory for this character or this thing. And I like to do it for everything as much as I can. And, you know, of course, all that could be changed anytime because I could go, you know what? No, well, actually, it wasn't that. It was this. And then it's just... I make up another thing. Right. Um, but I think, though, my point is only, though, that I feel like it just makes the world so much richer when you really believe it. Note that commitment to motivating everything we see on screen is present, but it is completely subject to change, even in Zach's own mind. 
There's probably no better recent example of this than the retconning of Martian Manhunter into the world. How early did you know that Swanwick was Martian Manhunter? Did you already know in Man of Steel? In Man of Steel, I did not know he was uh, Martian Manhunter. Then during Justice League, I really thought it would be fun to, to do that. I'll be honest, nobody was really into it but me. The now-famous whiteboards are another example of ideas and intentions where Zack's mind can change on its own or be persuaded. In Dallas, Texas, there's a curated show that I've done. In that show, there's a 40-foot dry erase that shows the entire two-movie arc that we had planned for the future. There's tons of stuff that it doesn't include, and it also has changed a great deal based on the way the story changed since I wrote that story. I put up the dry erase board that shows the two-movie arc for what would have been the two more movies after this. Of course, a lot has changed because, you know, stories evolve. And in another recent example, even alternative dialogue is potentially possible. Referring to the We Live in a Society line in the marketing but not in the movie, Zach shared, What I was trying to do was, for the black and white version, for the charity version of the movie, I wanted to, there's a a second ending of the movie, of the Jared Leto scene, just slightly different. Honor. Really, Bruce, honor. We live in a society where honor to distant memory. By the way, who do you think screamed the loudest? The girl or the boy? So between Justice's Grey and Zack Snyder's Justice League, the charity cut and the theatrical one, rigid and singular canonicity is less of a concern. There are even cases where Zack's own headcanon can contradict a film. For example, Zack recently shared his idea behind the liquid geo history lesson in Man of Steel. This kind of liquid metal and this kind of pewter color, which we thought was really cool. And then we thought this kind of propaganda style, that this was a created, sort of a state-created, sponsored history lesson. So you got a lot of these heroic angles and heroic depictions of Kryptonian conquest or imperialism. While he may have had this kind of motive in mind, the sequence itself includes imagery of Kal-El's vessel being launched into space towards Earth, which is represented with recognizable continental landmasses. You can see the Americas. You might recall this vessel in particular because the starburst pattern behind it is oft regarded as a nod to Kal-El's crystal craft in Superman 78. Well, the inclusion of this craft in a clear depiction of the Earth are last-minute heretical details known only to Jor-El and wouldn't have been part of a state-sponsored presentation. Within the reality of the story, even Even if the bulk of it was propaganda, those Superman-specific parts would have to have been inserted by Lara after selecting Earth, or more likely, amended by the Jor-El AI. Now, does this contradiction completely discredit the director? No, of course not. We just don't check our brains at the door just because Zack Snyder said something. It's a cautionary tale to give Word of God interpretations the appropriate weight. I love Superman, and I've got my iHeart ZS Rebus T2, but I don't foist infallibility upon them. I don't need to graffiti Superman with false God because I never put perfection on him in the first place. So let's be at least as kind to Zack, remembering that he's a humble human artist sharing his heart, his art, not someone who asks to be interpreted through the lens of papal perfection. Like, just chill out, man. Relax. (laughs) So... If all you need is a word from Zach to call it a day, that's okay. 
then this show's not for you. But if you want to dig deep and see how even what he says can find support in the film, well, now we're talking. (laughs) Zach's absolutely a vital source of insight and guidance, but you should also consider the value of your own journey, your own experience. As Joseph Campbell says, Now what are you to do about instruction? You can get clues from people who have followed paths, but you have then to carry them off that and translate it into your decision. And there is no book of rules, so you have to work it out yourself. Which is what we mean by chew your food, not wait to be spoon-fed by the filmmakers. (laughs) To learn how to learn, think how to think, not just recite pre-digested answers already given to you. We want to be flexible in our thinking, and our interpretation of the evidence. Remember, there's always something cleverer than yourself. Going back to the black suit, for example, over the course of various interviews, Zach actually answers differently sometimes. Not that any one answer is wrong, right, or changed, necessarily, but that they may all exist on different layers of inquiry and expression. A practical example of this is found in one of the most moving moments in the movie. Having routed evil and rescued the innocents, Diana turns her attention to a slightly stunned schoolgirl. You okay, princess? Can I be like you someday? You can be anything you want to be. (laughs) Well, logical formalists can condemn Diana for lying to a little girl. I'm an immortal demigod raised on a magical island of warrior women with thousands of years of training. And that construes Be Like You to mean what Diana did in the last 30 seconds in terms of power. But a more generous and natural interpretation abstracts either the question, deed, or answer. That she's asking a question of character more than capability. Whether one day she may rescue, give hope, and reassurance by demonstrating power, beauty, and compassion. She's not a toddler asking the impossible. What do you want to be when you grow up, Sydney? A triceratops. Okay. <laughs> That's a dinosaur. Then, then you're going to be extinct. A triceratops. <laughs> and it is absurd to interpret the exchange this way. Instead of intentionally imposing an interpretation to force a conclusion of contradiction, doesn't it seem fair to view a work in good faith? to give it the benefit of the doubt and believe it's meant to make sense. I don't believe it. Believe it. To that end, the burden of proof is on the prosecution to prove the plot hole beyond all reasonable doubt. As defense counsel, I only have to provide a plausible interpretation anchored to the evidence, not establish that these alternatives are absolutely true beyond a shadow of a doubt. That means that I can argue in the alternative as well. So let's just start with these guidelines and add more as we need them. We'll warm up with a layup. Question. Diana says that the mother boxes are indestructible. Barry's suggestion of destruction is shot down, but Desaad says in the end that they're destroyed. Isn't this a plot hole? (laughs) This is a classic example of a loaded question, and if you abstract it to that extent, this is absolutely a bad faith argument, which ignores the hidden rules of conversation and imposes a ridiculous interpretation. The critic is saying that Diana is claiming that the boxes are indestructible for all time, but a better restatement would be that she's saying they're indestructible to date, to the best of their knowledge at the time. That destruction is unprecedented, not impossible. Still, there's a germ of truth in the idea that the League didn't fully explore their options. Vic shoots down Barry's fire idea, but doesn't elaborate on other approaches. It may be somewhat fair to defer to Diana because the accumulated strength and magic of the gods couldn't destroy the boxes, but then again, they didn't have the absolute master of ones and zeros. The complete cost-benefit
benefit analysis seems to still err on the side of the Superman plan, because either approach awakens the box and summons Steppenwolf, and even if you successfully stop the Unity, you're still stuck with Steppenwolf and without Superman. Moreover, even if they execute Cyborg's box, without Superman to scare the other boxes back to their slumber, nothing stops an endless stream of Steppenwolfs from coming to Earth. So the costs are the same, and the risks equally uncertain, but the benefits of bringing back Superman are clearer. The death of the boxes is just a happy accident. Well, question, why did the boxes die? If Zeus is separating Thunderbolt, then for that he was given a Thunderbolt. True! didn't destroy the boxes back then, why would they have died now? The X-Factors may have been the Mystics and Cyborg, supported by a subtle visual effect. Steppenwolf was able to synchronize the boxes solo, so does that mean that the Mystics in the middle of the battlefield were just cosmetic cultists? Or might all their ritual and chanting actually be accomplishing something? During the Defiance, the Mystics start chanting even before the boxes synchronize, giving rise to red wisps of energy coming from the ground to surround the unit to be. We see these streams of energy the entire time they're together. Contrast this against the final fight, where there are no chanting mystics, no external streams, and it's not too much of a reach to suggest that there was some additional shielding the first time that wasn't there the second. With Barry's help, he'll break through the Unity's defenses. And of course, we can add on countless additional rationales like Cyborg's intervention within, Superman's superior strength without, the stress of a second failed synchronization, or the successful slaying of their master. Darkseid had merely faded from view, but Steppenwolf's sudden decapitation could cause psychic backlash, or any number of differences between the first and second situations to explain their expiration. But actually, do we know that they're expired? Question, how do we know that the mother boxes were destroyed? They seem fully physically intact. I saw this question on the message board, but if we want to steel man it more, we would add their survival from the first separation as a supporting argument. But if we follow Grice's maxim of quality, we give to Saad the benefit of the doubt that he's being truthful, and we observe that Darkseid seems to concur with the statement, and in the spirit of the episode, we see if we've been given enough to support his claim. I think that we were, and that we can believe that they were destroyed. We already know that mother boxes can speak to apocalyptians at a distance, whether across galaxies, the one that woke and called to me, or to be summoned away from a tunnel fight to the other side of the globe. It called to him, the mother box, the one he already has. But most importantly, this psychic link is silently imperceptible to the audience. In the following exchange, Steppenwolf is responding to a hail in a one-sided way where we cannot hear what the boxes are saying to him. What is it? And I'm not going to pull all the clips, but there are countless occasions where the gods show extrasensory perception that they summarize as scent. Even Diana does this. The scent of the enemy, of absence, darkness, death. Add it all together, it means that Desaad and Darkseid could perceive the silent demise of the mother boxes in a way that the audience couldn't. To hear the psychic scream or the scent of death, or it could be as simple as the knowledge that those loyal boxes would have kept the boom tube open if they could, and with its closure is the conclusion of that last proof of life. While we're on the topic of mother boxes, let's look at a few observations we can make. The first scene that gives name to these artifacts take place on Themyscira. The mother box has awoken, yet nothing has happened. It has slept for thousands of years since the first age. Why did it wake at all?
Now, this is dense with information and implication, much of it which you can glean yourself, but I want to point out two things. First, that the boxes have been awake for about a month or so. This comes from the approximate time frame of Justice League relative to Superman's death in BVS. <laughs> and the frustrating thing about first episodes is that everything hyperlinks to a whole separate discussion that we'll have to sidestep for now. Let's just say that the introductory scenes give enough context that some time has passed from when the boxes were first awakened by Superman's death cry to Steppenwolf's eventual invasion. Now, the second point I want to make is that Hippolyta's question seems to suggest that they're unaware of the outside world. Superman's spontaneous new superpower to project his death cry literally around the globe is evidently perceived in Gotham, Metropolis, and Atlantis, who can all connect what they hear to the Kryptonian's death. But for the Amazons, even if they can connect the unusual waking with this unexpected cry, they have no context to connect the cry to anything else, not knowing about the outside world or Superman. These factors could combine to give us some insight why this box awoke and not the others. Or to be more accurate, awoke, stayed awake, and even called out to Steppenwolf. Multiversal space-time does not seem to be a limitation on the mother box, able to open a tube to the throne room of Apocalypse in another universe. So why did it take a month from first awakening until Steppenwolf's arrival? Why didn't the box reach out to Darkseid directly? And why didn't the other boxes stay awake? So question, why didn't the box reach out to Darkseid directly? While the boxes don't seem to be limited by distance, they still need a target, and there's no in-film confirmation that Darkseid is where he was 5,000 years ago. Instead, according to Diana, they reached out into the darkness and contacted one of Darkseid's conquerors. After they make contact with Steppenwolf, who in turn makes contact with Darkseid, the boxes can reach out to Apocalypse directly. This seems to reinforce two points. First, that the mother boxes need coordinates, not just an intention, and second, that coordinates are indeed transmissible. To elaborate, just because the boxes wanted to reach out to their former master, they couldn't, on want, and intention alone. They couldn't do it until Steppenwolf relayed Darkseid to them. The corollary to this is that Darkseid could not just return to the Lost World at will either. Boom tubes are not wish-based. They don't just take you where you wish or want to go, but you actually need location information, which we'll call coordinates. So that's that second point. We can see that coordinates are transmissible, even over molten hologram. In other words, it doesn't require a mother box from said location to transmit and preserve such location. This is made completely clear by the we will use the old ways scene. By then, the earthbound boxes are dead, and there'd be no way to navigate to Earth with the old ways if the earth boxes were necessary to know the location. I'm spelling this out because a common apologetic for the lost world question is that the location was lost with and because of the boxes. But the old ways scene shows that coordinates can be independent of the box's location and even survival. After the coordinates to Earth are sent to Apocalypse, they didn't need Need the boxes to make their way there. And of course that leads us to the question, why wasn't Earth's location transmitted during the Defiance? So some of our earlier questions may act as a partial apologetic for that. Question, why did more than a month pass from the Awakening to Steppenwolf's arrival? Probably the most intuitive answer is that it took that long to find Steppenwolf peeing past haunts in the hopes of a hit somewhere in the darkness. But that delay could also be telling in other ways as well. One possibility is that it took that long to convey the coordinates. We don't know what it takes to leap across universes, given an infinite number of them. Even if Steppenwolf was eager to accept the call, who knows how long it takes to specify just one. 
And perhaps conveying Darkseid's location could be quicker because he's already in a universe with an address, even if the precise location within had to be updated. So that apologetic might argue that Darkseid left Earth's universe too quickly to transcribe the coordinates. In a world already imaged by satellite down to the square foot, we might take for granted the ability to record and relay our global position with ease. But all one has to do is look at distortions and historical maps to see the difficulty of charting the unknown. Even as explorers could navigate to such locales millennia before receiving reliable maps. This is a little bit analogous to how encryption works, but we're going to file that away for now. Just remember that we're talking about a multiverse of parallel worlds, and in order to distinguish and describe the universe you intend, you must measure the quantum waveform of the universe. But the very act of measurement entangles the mother box with the waveform, creating brand new universes in the process. Well then, in the Schrodinger's cat thought experiment, the radioactive atom in a superposition of decayed and not decayed gets entangled with the detector and in turn the cat. Now remember, we are also made of electrons and atoms which obey the laws of quantum mechanics, so we are quantum mechanical too. So when we open the box, there is no measurement, no wave function collapse, we simply get entangled with the state of everything inside the box. So we see the cat alive and we see the cat dead. Now, how is that possible? I'm guessing you've never seen both an alive and dead cat before. But the solution is, it's because the you that saw the cat alive and the you that saw it dead actually inhabit separate worlds. By that I mean they exist in their own complete realities. If a quantum object gets entangled with the environment, it is said to undergo environmental decoherence. This branches the wave function of the universe, essentially splitting the universe into two slightly different copies. What we are unaware of is that the other outcome also happened, just to someone who is not you anymore. I mean, both observers came from you, but they are no longer you, and they are no longer identical to each other. This interpretation of quantum mechanics is called many worlds, and if it's true, the branching of the wave function is happening all the time, so frequently in fact that the rate may well be infinite. It only doesn't look that way to us because we only experience our tiny sliver of the multiverse. Yeah, that's what I just said, Derek. <laughs> Imagine trying to write down an address that changed with every stroke of your pen, all of which is to say, don't take multiversal cartography lightly. While boom tubes seem to span reality with ease, we shouldn't assume that their generation is trivial. After all, Steppenwolf has many occasions to go from here to there, chase after this or that, fetch one thing or another, but on most occasions, boom tubes are used sparingly. Steppenwolf doesn't use a tube to evacuate the falling cage or chase down the fleeing box. Boom tubes aren't used to kidnap or snatch those with the scent of the other boxes. And parademons commute from a local nest in the bay and not from a column of light, suggesting that there are some limitations on boom tubes which could come down to calculation time. Another reason for the month-long delay might lie with why this box stayed awake. So question, why did the Amazonian box stay awake? In the introductory scene, we see Superman death cry disturb all the boxes. And as a quick aside, the idea that everyone on Earth personally heard him die may explain his acclaim after his death a little better for the doubters and detractors maybe. It's one thing to read about the passing of a celebrity on social media. It's another thing to literally hear his dying breath as he gives his life for yours. The visceral, personal, and experiential nature of that may shift this Earth into a superhero society unlike ours. Anyways, going back to the boxes, we see Cyborg and Mara's boxes start up and then settle down. And while Kryptonian AI may be said to have a discernible personality, these living machines give us hints of traits like loyalty and fear. 
Dogs without masters. They rearranged matter at the will of their masters. It's like they were afraid of him. Yes, they were afraid of him. I was afraid. The statements about fear suggest that they can detect and measure strength and sleep if afraid. While mankind was able to forcibly wake their box and make it create Cyborg, who was able to hold his own against three boxes in the battlefield of the mind, and while the battle for the Atlantean box was brief, it was actually bloodier for Steppenwolf than against the Amazons, who may use supernatural artifacts but don't directly wield magic like Mera. And even the half-Atlantean Arthur is almost able to go toe-to-toe with Steppenwolf under the water. As those caretakers are clear and present threats, those boxes go back to sleep. But the Amazons are, unfortunately, isolated and outgunned. Depending on how proactive and intelligent these boxes may be, the delay may have been the box simply gathering intelligence on the Amazons to assess the threat or a change in circumstance. Even if the warrior women aren't directly a threat on a planet with this history and its collection of heroes, it's possible that a threat is summoned to the island to assess and deal with the awakened box. For a billion-year-old object, a month is almost an imperceptible amount to wait and see. And the relative lack of urgency on behalf half of the Amazons might be a part of their own immortality as well. A month in the life of a 5,000-year-old is proportionally about 10 hours for us. So, in sum, the delay could have been the time it took to search for Steppenwolf, the time it took to chart and transmit the coordinates for an undiscovered universe, and possibly the surveillance of the Amazons to assess them as a threat to Steppenwolf's forces. And I'm sure you can come up with other potential possibilities. If I had a dollar for every possibly... The point is that Steppenwolf not arriving on the day of need not be interpreted as a plot hole. Plenty of rational alternatives exist that don't need to be spoon-fed us because they're not the story. But of course, that's not the real question about the boxes you want to know, right? (laughs) We'll get to it. I promise we still have a little more groundwork to do. It's a little difficult to grapple with the fourth world because it's all over the film and all over the place. It's hard to just dive down into one scene or question without cross-referencing everything else. But let's use that last exchange between Desaad and Darkseid as a foothold and work backwards from there. I told you. Steppenwolf would fail. Yes. Yes, you did. My master, now that the mother boxes have been destroyed, how will you retrieve your great prize? Anti-life is found, Desaad, and we will stop at nothing to possess it. Ready the Armada? We will use the old ways. And so we'll be digging deep in the future, but for our purposes today, I just want to make five observations. The first one we've already covered, which is that coordinates are transmissible. They can still get to Earth without the Earthbound boxes. Second, Apocalypteans aren't omniscient. They lie, hide, and deceive. Third, Apocalypteans subordinate victory under other interests and ulterior motives. Fourth, Darkseid has options besides the Armada. Fifth, and finally, that there are old ways and new ways. When you explore these implications, they cover a multitude of sins with respect to how sensible the logic. For example, it's important to underline the idea that the Apocalypteans are not omniscient. Steppenwolf's constant reporting may seem tedious to a detractor, but it actually establishes a critical point for our apologetics, that active communication is required. It isn't as if all of Steppenwolf's doings, comings, and goings were being continuously streamed back to Apocalypse. He has to report in, and information is passed both ways. Steppenwolf, have you begun the conquest? Desaad needs Steppenwolf to tell him, to fill him in on something he doesn't know. You will come to Earth. 
And Steppenwolf needs Darkseid's answer to tell him through the molten hologram. And by the way, the moniker for that comes by way of the visual effects team at Weta, and I think Snyder has used it on occasion as well. This means that there's an information gap in which the parties elect what gets conveyed across the cosmos. It isn't the case that automation, technology, or the parademons are already telling Desaad all these things. And this likely applies to the coordinates of Earth back during the Defiance as well, but more on that later. What we're highlighting now is the exploitation of that information gap by the Apocalyptians to lie and hide. Desaad and Darkseid hide Steppenwolf's predicted failure from him. Even after the tussle in the tunnel, Steppenwolf says nothing about the League to Desaad. He's hidden any hint of realistic resistance from Darkseid, and so we already have a precedent for saving face and hiding shame, deception, and lies. And just to make it absolutely explicit, Diana directly calls him out on it. I watched your island burn, your sisters begging for their lives, as did your mother. Now, we were there. We know it's all lies, something that the spirit of truth has to take on faith. But let's not take this knowledge for granted either. While bad guys who lie is not exactly uncommon, it's also not a given. Zod was incredibly honest almost all the time. And Lex is complex, but could be called honest from a certain point of view. <laughs> and even Ares would shape his words in a way that he could have a claim on the truth. But Steppenwolf's lie here is unambiguously bald-faced, shamelessly untrue. And so culturally, Apocalyptians do not see the need to twist the truth. They can and will just flat-out lie. When a man lies, he murders some part of the world. So keep that in mind. Be patient. We're building the base for our case. <laughs> The next big building block is our third observation, that these new gods subordinate victory to other interests. They want to win, sure, but they want other things more than just winning. The fact that Darkseid did nothing despite knowing Steppenwolf was expected to fail proves that that was an acceptable outcome. There are countless could've, would've, should've complaints countered by this conclusion. Darkseid was not optimizing Steppenwolf's success. Even if he says anti-life is his ultimate aim, it seems Darkseid is not too keen to have Steppenwolf be the one to make that claim. If you want your subordinate to succeed, you can foster transparency, send him support, and encourage. Instead, they actively undermine and insult and passively sabotage by sitting on their hands. The Apocalyptians show off the worst traits of an honor culture, where one can become worthless in an instant if they don't accomplish or succeed. In an honor culture, what it means to be a person of value is that you are the kind of person who's lived up to the demands of what it means to be a real man or a good woman. In other cultures that we sometimes refer to as dignity cultures, a person has value, they have worth because they're a human being. So of course there's differences in reputation, differences even in social status, but there's a degree to which you can never fully lose your worth if you live in a dignity culture. In an honor culture, you have to maintain these standards. You have to live up to these standards of being a real man or a good woman. And if you don't, you could lose your value altogether and never get it back where you're always bragging about your accomplishments because they're everything. That is a wild boast. You lack a knight's humility. Honor cultures are societies that put the defense of reputation at the center of social life and make that defense one of the highest priorities that people have. And I think the fact that your central figurehead is fighting on the front lines with basic bladed weapons should be a pretty powerful indication that these people don't prioritize practicality primarily. 
there's a little lazier version of this apologetic that essentially hand waves everything as Darkseid moves in mysterious ways. Which is true, but the filmmakers have given us enough footing to get a feel for their culture and values. Beyond just being a completely mysterious and unknowable thing, we know that they value fighting, conquest, and subjugation. That it isn't and has never been about efficiency, utility, or practicality. Apocalypse isn't doing everything through unmanned, self-replicating robots, or using the infinity of space to farm or husband worlds. Instead, seemingly only accepting those that are wild-caught. Darkseid has a reputation for destroying countless worlds and feeding on psychic despair. They don't use anything akin to modern battle tactics or practical weapons of war. Conquest seems to be very ritualized, ceremonial, and performative rather than sensible. And as much as we might want to scoff at that, when we look back at our own history of warfare, so much of it was exactly that. You can go back to our Grail episodes for some of the silliness of knights. And what is Steppenwolf but a space knight? As Zack says of Steppenwolf in an interview with Yahoo, quote, He's a space knight in weird armor just stomping heads. <laughs> a lot of culture is the environment we take for granted while immersed within it. Feudalism, lords, knights, castles, and conquest don't make a lot of sense, except that it did while we were in it for hundreds of years of our history at a time. So before you ask why didn't they do this or that to win, why not ask what might they want more? Okay, so on to our fourth point, the dark side had options besides the Armada. Let's listen to these lines again in particular. My master. Now that the mother boxes have been destroyed, how will you retrieve your great prize? Anti-life is found, Desaad, and we will stop at nothing to possess it. Ready the Armada? We will use the old ways. Probably the most common interpretation of these lines goes something like this, that now that the earthbound mother boxes have been destroyed and boom tubing to earth is impossible, how will you retrieve your great prize? And Darkseid replies, we will stop at nothing to possess it. Even the inability to boom tube to earth, ready the armada, which is the old way we will use now that the new ways of boom tubing are unavailable. Now, I can see why people would interpret it that way, but if we use that interpretation, it contains four contradictions. First, Darkseid doesn't react to the destruction of the mother boxes. Second, Darkseid says he'll stop at nothing, but did nothing to see Steppenwolf succeed. Third, the mother boxes were there during the defiance. And fourth, Desaad asks the question as if there's a choice. So, embedded in the idea that boom toing to Earth is now impossible is the assumption that the Earthbound boxes are the only mother boxes in the multiverse. We'll discuss that later, but for now, let's say that they've lost these planetary level doomsday weapons that allows a single invader to conquer a planet single-handedly as long as the unity fires, along with the terraforming and the conversion of the populace into parademons. This weapon has a proven track record and has been lost for the same 5,000 years as the yet unused ALE and the film, in fact, never really elaborates on what the ALE can do. The ultimate weapon, the anti-life equation, the key to controlling all life and all will throughout the multiverse. If anything, its hallmark ability seems to already occur with Conquest using the Unity. The Unity cleanses a planet with fire, transforming it into a copy of the enemy's world. All who live become servants of Darkseid. Their free will must be ripped from them, like the other worlds, given absolution in one glorious belief to serve him. 
In any case, you'd expect some reaction from Darkseid at the loss of such a strategic weapon under this interpretation. We'll come back to this. So the second contradiction is if we take Darkseid literally when he says, stop at nothing. Meaning, Darkseid will cross the stars in his armada reluctantly because the boom tubes aren't available, and doing so is made a necessity by the destruction of the mother boxes. But this interpretation is literally not true. If you look at how Steppenwolf's failure was predicted, expected, and allowed, if you read will stop at nothing as literally true, then Darkseid would have and could have seen Steppenwolf succeed. That it would have been okay for him or Decide to obtain anti-life instead of Darkseid. And we know that isn't true because Darkseid did nothing to stop Steppenwolf's defeat. He sent no support, no supplies, and not even a courtesy blast of the Omega Beams through the tube. Stop at nothing? No, Darkseid was willing to let Steppenwolf die, the boxes be destroyed, and the Earth be alerted, the heroes be emboldened and unified, all because something stopped him, another interest, one likely common to why he was willing to bear the shame of the defiance for the past 5,000 years. After all, once ascending to the throne, isn't history written by the victors? Couldn't he just cut off your tongue or cut off your head for even making mention of his defeat so long ago? Again, patience. For now, we have a picture of someone willing to win, within certain boundaries, unspoken and implied, prone to grandiose statements that aren't entirely true. The third contradiction is embedded in assuming that the armada is necessary and not a choice. If the boom tubes are made by the mother boxes, and the first age of hero represents the old ways, then it was an option to use boom tubes even back then. But, by and large, they didn't invade that way that we can see. This means the election of an armada doesn't necessarily imply the impossibility of boom tubes. This takes us to our fourth contradiction, which returns us to our fourth point, that Darkseid has options. By this time, it is practically set in stone that Darkseid wants the anti-life, and can even forgive a debt of 50,000 worlds in exchange for that one equation. If it were impossible to tube to Earth, why would Decide even need to ask? Why would Darkseid even need to reply? It's as if they had said, we've got life-saving medication A and life-saving medication B for the comatose patient. We're out of A, how should we proceed? If the options are A and B and you're out of A, you don't even need to ask, you just administer B. If there were no other options, Desaad would be the one informing Darkseid that the armada was ready. Instead, Desaad asks how, because Darkseid still has options. He has to reply to clarify option B, because he still has options C, D, and E, and even A may still be on the table in some way. It isn't as binary as Boom or Armada necessarily. They've got ways, at least old and new, which was our fifth and final observation. And to review, since we took a detour, our observations were, first, that you can transmit your coordinates without physically transmitting a mother box, second, that apocalypticians lie, third, that they're not just about winning, culture controls, fourth, that options existed besides the armada, and now we're on the fifth and final idea of the old and new ways. It's not entirely clear if the Defiance and Darkseid's invasion were archetypical of old and new. Rather, they both seem to be outliers since the Defiance was an exceptional defeat, and the invasion is carried out by somebody in exile who also ends up being defeated. But if we do, we can compare the two and notice some differences. In 5,000 years, we've gone from meeting your enemy on a mutually agreed-upon battlefield to asymmetric 
asymmetric warfare, reliant on hit-and-run tactics, intelligence gathering, and defensive fortifications. In the first instance, there was the Armada, and in the second, ranged weaponry. In both cases, there seems to only be the Conqueror and the Cannon Fodder, with no apparent command structure in between. And both battles would have relied upon the Unity as a doomsday device, although only the latter used their boom tubes from what we can see. The fact that fighting has changed in 5,000 years under Darkseid is interesting because it shows a willingness to refine their tactics some, so as to not repeat the losses they suffered that one time, maybe. They're still a little honor-bound and a little dumb, swinging axes instead of dropping smart bombs. But an interesting counterexample is how Diana is still swinging a sword after 100 years of modern war. It's ironic, but her continued commitment to the sword can be seen as an example of how she loves peace. Why? If Diana was all about being the best of battle, wouldn't she have adopted more modern tools of the trade? If you put a firearm in the hands of somebody faster than a speeding bullet, Wonder Woman would put even John Wick to shame. The result would have been faster, cleaner, safer, less traumatic, and certainly less collateral, considering all the concrete she sent flying, easily capable of killing those below if hit. But despite Diana's training and willingness to wield it when called upon, her disinterest in weapons, combat, and efficiency, her love of peace, means she sticks to what she already knows. She has no interest in updating her arsenal or arms despite clear modern sophistication elsewhere. Organic and biomechatronic body parts. You got your money's worth. Took me almost a minute to disable it. Diana isn't a Luddite or backwards, but she's drawn the line at learning any more about war. Speaking about Diana, she makes a comment about Darkseid which implies that even his old ways were new from a certain point of view. At one point, she alleges the boxes are a billion years old. These boxes together are world destroyers, a billion years old. She also says this. The leader of the invaders was a being called Darkseid, a name cursed and feared in every universe. If both statements are true, it tends to imply that there was a sea change when Darkseid took over. After all, if the Apocalypteans have been destroying worlds for a billion years before Darkseid, first, would there even be a universe left? When Alexander saw the breadth of his domain, he wept, for there were no more worlds to conquer. It's a little bit of a reverse Fermi paradox idea. But second, wouldn't the reputation of Apocalypse and the Mother Boxes precede and supersede Darkseid's? If they've been destroying worlds all this time, and Darkseid comes along in, say, the last 300,000 years, isn't their name the one to be cursed and feared before his? Darkseid seems awfully proud of his 100,000 world record. I have turned 100,000 worlds to dust looking for anti-life, looking for those who robbed me of my glory. But that figure means nothing if it isn't a significant fraction of his achievements. And if that took place over the course of one billion years, then that's one world every 10,000 years. Longer than most reckonings of human civilization, and a might more than we might even make it without self-destructing. Coming around that rarely could practically be seen as benevolent. Add to the fact that Krypton knew about 100,000 worlds 20,000 years ago, in this universe alone, if Darkseid had been conquering since the beginning of those billion years, it means plucking one world out of the entire multiverse every 10,000 years. Could practically be seen as sparing 100,000 worlds save one alone, say nothing of the entire 
multiverse, and that is far from his reputation. Instead, I think it's fair to guess that the Count is concentrated around the time of Darkseid, associating his name and conquest to be the one that's cursed and feared in every universe. So what was the change? What went on? Hang on, we've got one last detour before that, but it's a big one. Question, are there more than three mother boxes? And this question isn't really concerned about the literal answer, but the implications of said answer. If the Earthbound boxes were the only ones in existence, the implication is that Steppenwolf should have immediately connected the discovery of a mother box to the well-known story of Darkseid's defeat during the Defiance. On the other hand, if mother boxes are plentiful and fungible, why would Steppenwolf have to spend any time finding them at all? Wouldn't it be standard operating procedure to be supplied a set for conquest? And even if Darkseid wanted to set Steppenwolf up, shouldn't Steppenwolf have suspected something if denied such an obvious path to success for something that Darkseid so desperately wants? The questions assume that mother boxes are either totally unique like the Holy Grail or as disposable as a pile of junk mail. These extremes are inconsistent with the film, but we already have a perfectly plausible middle ground. Something rare and special, but not entirely singular. In the realm of artifacts, Wonder Woman's magical swords, the God Killer, and the Sword of Athena, respectively, are a perfect example. Capable of outperforming a normal sword by far, but neither unique nor commonplace. Instead, access to either artifact was limited. The God Killer was guarded on the island, and the Sword of Athena had to be discovered through her archaeological profession and pursuits. We assumed that that sword, because she works for the Louvre and she's like constantly going to archaeological yeah. site from time to time, I just thought that she found it in her travels and that when she saw it, she was like, that's the one for me. Like, you know, because if it exists on Earth, she's probably <laughs> one of the few people that could just track it down. It's not as if Diana replaced the God Killer destroyed in 1918 with Amazon one click, but instead through the diligent development of expertise, access connections, and other efforts. And we can imagine it's similar with the mother boxes. They aren't commodities as Diana designates them an age of 1 billion years. And you don't date a fungible technology that could have come out of the factory last week by the earliest incarnation of the concept. For example, I don't say that my phone is 150 years old, but if they're actually that old, as we mentioned before, they couldn't have been involved in conquest all that time. We run afoul of the Fermi paradox and inconsistencies with Darkseid's reputation. And this means that over time, they may have suffered fates analogous with the artifacts Diana finds. Some may be in the custody of the Apocalyptian armory under lock and key as preciously guarded treasures. Some may have been lost to time and adventures unknown and unseen scattered by the precursors. And some may have even been lost in battle by would-be Apocalyptian conquerors. Because while Darkseid and Steppenwolf have impeccable victory records. Defenders, they have failed a hundred thousand worlds. They always fail. This world will join the others. This world will fall like all the others. The only world Darkseid had ever lost. This doesn't preclude the possibility of prior apocalyptic failures. Remember that Steppenwolf is but one of Darkseid's conquerors, plural. It's called out to the dark place, to one of Darkseid's conquerors. And yet, mighty Steppenwolf, who might have sat here by the side of the Great One. But if other conquerors exist and Steppenwolf isn't at his side, why weren't they there? It stands to reason because their accomplishments weren't as incredible as Darkseid's or Steppenwolf's nearly perfect undefeated records. That these other conquerors can and do taste defeat which in fact we know has happened. 
I slaughtered those who sought his throne. Because conquest is how you ascend in this society, whether to the throne, in the case of Darkseid, or to its side, as Steppenwolf had hoped. If these would-be conquerors were defeated by Steppenwolf's slaughter, and others have not yet ascended to the right hand of Darkseid, it's possible that mother boxes have been lost by other incompetent attempts at conquest over the ages. I mean, look, conquer is the word of the day. What do they want? To invade, to conquer. To conquer, three boxes have to synchronize. Have you begun the conquest? Have you finished the conquest? Surely, Darkseid isn't reliant on a singular space knight in exile to conquer all of existence on his own. And how are these other conquerors expected to carry out their mission? What do the boxes do? To conquer, to return and conquer. So what does this mean for Steppenwolf? It means quite simply that there are more than three mother boxes out there, that one comes across them on occasion as detritus of the prior age before Darkseid's aggressive expansion, or sometimes as a byproduct of it, when a would-be conqueror with a less than sterling record lost, that they are rare and powerful and reserved for the favored, which isn't this betrayer in exile. And so Steppenwolf would certainly prioritize the recovery of these discovered boxes and not expect to be issued any in support of that recovery or conquest based on his standing and their rarity. This is something that happens now and then, not proof positive that he had found the lost world. Now quickly, three last points in support of boxes beyond the earthbound ones. First, Desaad and Darkseid's willingness to accept Steppenwolf's defeat and the destruction of the boxes. Consider the power of the unity which allows a singular agent of apocalypse to conquer and terraform an entire planet on their own while converting the wills of the survivors into loyal thralls. Not to mention the ability to make masters of ones and zeros raise the dead, and all the boom tube powers. And that's something that's been lost for 5,000 years. If the earthbound boxes were the only mother boxes in existence that conveyed upon you all these benefits, it's very hard to see them sacrificing them willingly, easily, and without comment like they do. Second, some of the holes in Diana's story can be patched by the Guardians from the Stars, the Green Lantern Corps, who've encountered and repelled the Apocalyptians before, e.g. no protectors here, no lanterns. So to me, if the earthbound boxes are a singular example of this doomsday device, routinely used in this ridiculous ritual combat consistently consisting of a ground war with melee weapons, then if I'm the Guardians of Oa, this seems like a perfect opportunity to capture such a major chess piece. And I don't send just a lone lantern, but command the entire core to capture it and end the threat. However, if the Apocalyptians have these devices on multiple fronts, I have to spread my forces and I can't prioritize the capture of any one set, which is what we see in the film. Third and finally, as extrinsic evidence and a bit of a cheat, by this point we're all well versed in the death of Lois Lane as revealed by Zack in 2019 SnyderCon, where in a post-Justice League timeline, after the League has already saved the Earth from the Unity and destroyed the Earthbound boxes, Darkseid boom tubes into the Batcave to slay Lois Lane. A snapshot of this is seen in Zack Snyder's Justice League, and this shows that Darkseid still has the ability to boom tube via Mother Box after Steppenwolf's defeat and the destruction of the Earthbound box. Boxes, making it likely that there are more mother boxes available to Apocalypse. Of course, this does raise the ancillary question of how Steppenwolf was expected to conquer any world, say nothing of 50,000 of them, without mother boxes or an armada. And one theory is that he only ever goes where there are mother boxes in the first place,
place. So in that case, he's always summoned and boom tubed in. And a parallel variation of this is that he's repeatedly conquering infinite earths, which always have a set of mother boxes for him to use. And while plausible in many regards, both of these theories make mother boxes too freely available to excuse not using a second set to defeat the earth before searching for and assembling the existing set. A second theory is that Steppenwolf makes landfall and ceremonially defeats the defenders. He makes a molten hologram back to Apocalypse, who boom tube in a set of boxes to be used then. So those are on loan and not totally entrusted to Steppenwolf. And that explains why he's to gather the earthbound boxes rather than call in a rare set from Apocalypse to increase their overall supply of boxes rather than risk the loss of another set. Another possibility is that while he may not have an entire armada, he has a ship or contingent, which slowly works its way across the stars claiming worlds in the old ways that count against his debt. During the Defiance and the Nightmares, we see what might be the Apocalyptian equivalent to a world engine, emitting great columns of fire that mimic the signature sight of the fire pits of Apocalypse, even before the boxes synchronize. As Silas observes elsewhere, alien technology can be analogous. The superheating characteristics of the scout ship are shared by the mother boxes, and if the Kryptonians were capable of terraforming 20,000 years ago, it's not a stretch to say the new gods could do it 5,000 years ago, with similarly massive hovering ships, columns of light, and noxious clouds. Under this theory, Steppenwolf is slowly terraforming worlds on his own, perhaps calling Apocalypse for reinforcement after he takes out the initial defenders on his own. It's all a little bit muddy, because we're given at least six different objectives for Apocalyptian conquest. One, the search for the anti-life equation. Two, the search for mother boxes. Three, the defeat of the defenders in ceremonial combat to bathe in their fear as it were. Fourth, destroy or turn to dust, scorched earth, or total annihilation. Five, conversion and subjugation to extract parademons or other loyal subjects. And six, terraform to occupy or rule for some unknown end, if not mere possession. Many of these overlap and some of these are mutually exclusive depending on the circumstance. This murky mixed agenda is maybe the greatest difficulty in taking Darkseid seriously. But if it's just Steppenwolf and some parademons, he's not going to be able to accomplish all of these goals on his own, which is why E.T. phones home. You could imagine one of the other possible reasons for the one month delay from awakening to invasion is that Steppenwolf is wrapping up one of the extended conquests on another world, and that he had to wait until the logistics were in place before he could come over to ours. Although it's a little hard to imagine that battle axe wielding Steppenwolf taking paperwork seriously. <laughs> suggesting that success and competent occupation was not a high priority, and perhaps why human resistance still remains in the nightmares. Can you imagine the grueling marathon a realistic conference call would be if everybody was still standing on the same ceremony we see in Steppenwolf's short status updates? That's right. Honor cultures, for example, are often very polite cultures, but something that Dove Cohen has referred to as the paradox of politeness is that these politeness norms coincide with norms as associated with responding aggressively to honor threats. So in that respect, Desaad contributes considerably to the richness of apocalyptic possibility, that they're not all just a bunch of muscle-bound warriors fit only for swinging a blade, but there are administrative go-betweens and toadies too, like Desaad who make it all work. Okay, as always, we're running long, so instead of arguing all the alternatives, let me answer this last question in the affirmative. Question, how could Darkseid forget 
the location of Earth. Wouldn't this have been a priority to preserve? Wouldn't it have been recorded or transmitted? Why wasn't it remembered or returned immediately? And given the priority of the ALE, why did they leave it all? Well, a lot of this is basically answered in their barbaric approach to conquest that places ceremony over logistics, which we emphasized at the end of our previous question. There is a greater emphasis on cultural trappings of appearance, honor, and rights than there are in terms of efficiency, efficacy, and even victory. And as alien a mindset as that is to me, I still think we can plot out a consistent set of motivations using the building blocks we've already established, which makes the lost discovery of Earth less inconceivable. To save some time, I'm just going to tell it in the affirmative to give you this alternate history from behind the scenes as one possible explanation. I would love to argue each point, but that would triple an already long episode, and of course I reserve the right to change or update, which means that this isn't a declaration of fact, simply that there exists a sequence of unseen events supported by the film that are conceivable, not canon. Okay, enough disclaimers, let's go. So I'm going to present it in chronological order, almost like a timeline. So in the beginning, there was the multiverse. 14 billion years ago, the universe containing this Earth comes into being. 4 billion years ago, we get this Earth, which starts to have a surface that you can engrave upon about a billion years after that. So somewhere between 3 billion years ago and the Defiance, some entity inscribes onto the Earth the anti-life equation for reasons and purposes unknown. 1 billion years ago, the precursors make the mother boxes, which are used sparingly, rather than completely conquering entire universes as the Fermi paradox would predict, and again, that's for unknown reasons, whether cultural disposition or external limitations, constraining. Cosmic guardrails like New Genesis, the Guardians of Oa, or other multiversal protectors perhaps. In the meantime, life flourishes throughout the universe, creating countless civilizations and at least a hundred thousand worlds. Whatever the reasons were for containing the ambitions of apocalypse, there's a shift, let's say a hundred thousand years ago. It's the sequence that matters, not the exact timing. An apocalypse begins to build a brutal culture around war. 20,000 years ago, during Krypton's great age of exploration, the knowledge of at least a hundred thousand worlds is collected and a scout ship ends up crash landing on Earth. The Apocalypteans begin begin to conquer the planets using armadas, and a warlike honor culture develops. Ascension to the throne is preceded by successful conquest, and under this scheme, 10,000 years ago, Darkseid's predecessor takes the throne. During his reign, mystics rediscover and master the Mother Boxes, ancient artifacts whose production method is lost to time, and the remaining ones are scattered about the multiverse by the precursors. They are added to the Apocalyptean arsenal as doomsday devices that accelerate conquest. With such overwhelming power and tools, the odds of Darkseid's predecessor ever being overthrown is scant, and as an immortal race of new gods, this means that Darkseid will never ascend to the throne. Even as he makes a name for himself, rising through the ranks, heir apparent, based on the brutality and sheer magnitude of successful conquests, still, without a change in circumstance, Darkseid will be subordinate to dear old daddy for eternity. Around 5,000 years ago, Darkseid learns of and seeks the anti-life equation, which is superior to the unity, a secret that could change the course of his life from second fiddle to King Daddy. A weapon more powerful than the Mother Boxes might be a way to overthrow and overtake. So Darkseid begins his search for the anti-life equation under the guise of conquest, accelerating his efforts even further, focusing on annihilation over occupation. A world turned to dust isn't all that useful, but it's one less world to search 
to scratch off the list. So when he comes to Earth thousands of years ago looking for this thing that he had heard was hidden somewhere in the universe, so he's searching all these planets, destroying them probably in his quest. Turns them to dust, he says. Turns them to dust. So he- it's during this period that Darkseid's name becomes known throughout the multiverse and the lanterns. And all the while, his search for the anti-life equation is a secret he keeps for himself. As far as anyone else is concerned, he's simply conquering worlds for apocalypse as you'd expect. He's still fighting under the auspices of his father's authority and the culture of apocalypse as it is. He still has to go through the ridiculous ritual combat and ceremony that make little sense for efficiency. He still has to put on the show, still has to preserve his honor and the ways prescribed by his father. Every human being that's ever lived cares about their reputation, they care about how other people see them. Honor cultures put this normal universal human concern on cultural steroids. And they also create a set of scripts or demands for how you should respond when your reputation is at risk, when your honor has been threatened. You have to respond in kind. You don't back down. And look at all the shame and humiliation heaped upon Steppenwolf just one generation later. All the ceremony and groveling that goes on, and you can imagine Darkseid doing similar in his day to his daddy. It is not so much a question of outcome, but a demonstration of loyalty, paying his dues, rising in rank, cutting his teeth, as Zack says, until it all goes south. So we get to see him like fighting, doing his thing, kind of a young world destroyer, cutting his teeth on, you know, some <laughs> some earthlings. And, you know, he bites off a little more than he can chew. With his armadas and his use of the unity, his win record is perfect until ceremony causes him to catch a battle axe to the clavicle. My pride broke it. My rage broke it. Darkseid's found the tool to take over the throne, but he has to withdraw because he's bleeding out. If it were up to him and he knew he could recover, Darkseid would have stayed in the system and recovered in space before returning for his revenge. There's no reason to retreat all the way back to Apocalypse in another universe when these Earthlings can't even reach beyond their own atmosphere. Only, it isn't up to Darkseid. His legions are on loan from Daddy Dearest, who likely has a standing order to retreat if they ever experience loss. That's not an entirely inane policy. The cosmos contains all kinds of threats and powers which might even be able to overwhelm an armada or a mother box. And better to retreat to fight another day than lose all that to hubris. And so Darkseid's subordinates, who are actually his father's subordinates, begin the retreat that Darkseid wouldn't have wanted. Remember, he would have happily healed in the asteroid belt if recovery was expected. To come back with a vengeance, but can't because his father's standing orders overrides his desires. And these are exactly the kinds of issues with authority and command he wants to get out from under. His rebellion against his father is what fuels the hunt for the ALE. So is it really any wonder that Darkseid might manage to keep the coordinates to Earth a secret? Darkseid's main goal was insurrection, so it wouldn't be hard to imagine others aiming for the throne as well. Even if protocols existed for the president, Preservation of coordinates, Darkseid could plausibly promote a policy to secure and encrypt such coordinates so they weren't accessible to alleged usurpers. Dad, let's password protect these coordinates to my conquests so that only those clearly loyal to you can decode them, like me or you, just in case Uncle Judas, Cousin Cassius, or Brother Brutus tries to steal them out from under us. This would look like loyalty while securing worlds away from all contenders but the king, who didn't know Darkseid was looking for the ALE to begin with, and that's not something that Darkseid would ever say or tell. And even without this pre-existing policy, you could completely understand if Darkseid deleted or encrypted the coordinates to Earth himself during a brief window of consciousness, because he does not want a usurper to overtake him by revenging his loss while he's out. He doesn't want a competitor to come to Earth to take the ALE 
from him. As we see with Steppenwolf, any new god can apparently detect and uncover the ALE. So even if Darkseid has to lose the location to Earth for now, that's better than losing the ALE forever. Remember that this kind of deception and hiding is possible because of the information gap that we demonstrated before between conquerors in the field and those back on Apocalypse. So what happens when Darkseid returns to Apocalypse? Well, he's at death's door and out of it. His competitors can't revenge his loss because the coordinates aren't accessible. And even if the current king is able to access them and wants to send out a response, it turns out he has other more immediate worries. After all, when is the best time to strike at a king? Wouldn't it be while his right hand, his heir apparent, is out of commission and catonic, due to his first and only loss, a sign of weakness in the king's seed, and the line of succession uncertain. While Darkseid is comatose, a war of succession breaks out. The minions who went with him to Earth, who are safe keeping the location to Earth, are still his father's underlings and called to fight by his father's side until they're killed in action. Eventually, Darkseid awakens to a world at war and joins the fray. By then, the defiant world is lost to him and everyone else as well, as it's impossible to recover Earth's info. In time, Darkseid ascends to the throne and subsequently obtains the Omega Sanction. So let's say 4,500 years ago, Darkseid's reign begins and his reputation spreads across the multiverse. Now that he's King Daddy, he has an opportunity to do things differently. He makes it policy to publicize the Defiance and his search for the anti-life equation. As we mentioned before, if history is written by the victors, why hasn't he erased this humiliation? from even being spoken of during thousands of years of his reign. Instead, as Desaad says, the story of the Defiance is well known. It's well known because Darkseid has commanded it. He does this because he does not want a subordinate to do what he did to his predecessor, which is to hide the ALE from him and try to take it as their own. By institutionalizing the story of the Defiance and the ALE among the Conquerors and the rank and file, it is impossible for them to override that standing order and publicly known interests. The Parademons, the Toadies, anyone and everyone becomes someone to report your rebellion to Darkseid. So to summarize, the location of Earth was lost because Darkseid decided it was better than forfeiting the ALE to other contestants for the throne. Nobody shall have the sword! Nobody shall wield Excalibur but me! And this happens to be consistent with Zack's Word of God explanation, responding to Melanie Augusto on Vero, quote, He almost died when he returned to Apocalypse. He was in a fight for power, and much time passed before he was in a position of power again. And by then, all who had been with him had been slayed. End quote. So all we've done is filled that story out in a way that's consistent with what we see elsewhere in the film. Although there is one major inconsistency which we'll cover in a bit. So, returning to the timeline, Darkseid sends out conquerors to subjugate and continue the search for the ALE as he broods on his throne. Some of these would-be conquerors fall to the protectors and lose their sets of mother boxes. Some of these conquerors aim for the throne and get cut down by Steppenwolf, who is exiled for betrayal. Apocalyptian culture is still martial, warlike, and toxic, but slowly and over time there are reforms. Instead of a big, inefficient, and costly show involving armadas and ground wars with pointy sticks, it becomes completely acceptable to strike at the enemy unawares, asymmetrically, to use projectile weapons, to gather intelligence, to use boom tubes, to conduct your business while hidden instead of a big public production. Hiding until he has all three, until he's ready. 
in some sense, instantiating the story of the Defiance as a pillar of new apocalyptian culture has created a willingness to not repeat all the mistakes that led to that exceptional solitary defeat. Darkseid had finally done it, gotten out from under his father's thumb and created new ways, followed without question and as much a part of the culture as anything that had come before. Not to say that these new ways are perfect, they're still honor bound, a little performative, a little dumb, but they're a little bit better. Even the shamed Steppenwolf was able to operate under them for days compared to Darkseid's defeat in less than an afternoon. Putting this all together creates a context where Steppenwolf's sabotage is meaningfully motivated. It's because Darkseid's desire for the ALE is well-known public knowledge among Apocalyptians, Steppenwolf can't successfully steal it for himself. The parademons defer to Darkseid, bowing in deference even over Molten Hologram, and would never defy him in favor of Steppenwolf. And if the theatrical cut is to be believed, they may even be capable of containing Steppenwolf and Moss. Even the mother boxes refuse to take Steppenwolf to the actual location of the ALE, instead opting only to give him a vision of it, so that in turn he can inform Apocalypse. Darkseid's story has made betrayal in this realm much more difficult, and our theory also explains Steppenwolf's exile with a path to redemption. After all, Darkseid had been his father's rising star and right hand, but his fall in battle was the spark that set off a succession war against the throne to take it. Well, as it is written, if thy right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If the mighty Steppenwolf isn't at his side, then his loss isn't a signal of Darkseid's weakness. And while Steppenwolf seems to be as loyal as a dog slaying other contenders to the throne, Darkseid casts him out as an example of what happens to anyone who plays the Game of Thrones, even if they think they're doing it for him. Consider the deterrent effect if Darkseid is willing to exile someone so loyal and powerful, what would he do to somebody actually aiming for the throne with malice? But once you cross me, you cross a certain line, I'm gonna kill you then. One of us is going to die. This is the paradox is that you have this politeness that goes hand in hand with this sensitivity to threat. Reputation is incredibly important. You want to have a reputation as someone that nobody should mess with. They're going to think twice before messing with you or your stuff or your family because they know that you're going to respond aggressively and violently. And that sort of reputation protects you. Finally, Darkseid doesn't waste Steppenwolf's loyalty with a death sentence, but instead saddles him with a debt, a way back, as long as he continues the work of conquest, which is exactly the work he would have been doing anyways. Darkseid gets all the benefits of Steppenwolf's service without any of the downsides. And in light of all these machinations, you might get a better sense of why Zack calls it a space opera. Yet, why then? Once discovered, doesn't Darkseid invest everything into obtaining the ALE immediately? Why does he let Steppenwolf's defeat play out? Why doesn't he immediately invade Earth and intervene? His purpose is twofold. First, it's to measure Earth. Second, it's to avenge himself and redeem the story of the Defiance. Darkseid is essentially sacrificing Steppenwolf as a scout to measure how Earth's defenders have evolved since the First Age, an intelligence-gathering step that would have saved him the last 5,000 years of searching if he had been allowed to gauge his opponents back then, instead of throwing himself into battle according to the dictates of their culture at the time. Darkseid allows Steppenwolf to die because he wants to revenge and repair his reputation. If that community exists within an honor culture, then the fact that everybody knows who you are can be problematic for you, at least in the case when your honor's been threatened, when you have been humiliated, when you have failed in some public way, and everybody knows about it. Darkseid will allow the new ways to evaluate the Earth, but he must use the old ways himself to revisit his defiance defeat and overcome it. If only you could see me wield Excalibur once more. 
Again, it's not a matter of efficiency, but storytelling and honor. He wants the well-known story of the Defiance to be updated and replaced by his victory and revenge. I've lived through others far too long. Lancelot carried my honor, and Guinevere my guilt. Mordred bore my sins. My knights have fought my causes. Now I shall be... In a way where he used the old ways and won. Not just nuked Earth from space or set off a unity in secret. Control of the story is something we see over and over again in these films. And that ties to our final issue. Question, isn't all of this contradicted by Diana's explanation? She says, Fading from the view of the enemy, anonymous among a trillion worlds. So in other words, more a matter of neglect, forgetfulness, and magnitude than the Game of Thrones we've said. And yes, we might massage our interpretations of everything to make it fit, but I prefer to impeach Miss Prince's testimony to get all these issues off my chest. <laughs> the reason we generally exclude hearsay as inadmissible evidence is because it can't be verified. The witness giving the testimony can be cross-examined, but if the witness is recounting what somebody else said, that unavailable party isn't on the stand to be questioned, challenged, or checked. That doesn't mean that the testimony isn't true factually, but it's highly vulnerable to falsification. So, consider how many layers of hearsay are embedded in this line. We and Bruce are being told what Diana says, the muralists say, the oral tradition says, that the Amazons say about what the invaders say about their view of Earth, with who knows how many other additional parties in between in the intervening millennia. Not to mention some serious questions of how exactly they'd know the enemy's perspective for certain after the fact, if not mere speculation or supposition. But let's set all that aside for now. So I love the first age sequence. It's one of the things that I was anticipating the most. It blew me away watching it, and it's incredibly rewatchable. I've lost count of how many times I've just skipped to watch just that scene. It is fully fitting of a fantasy epic and immediately makes everyone think of Lord of the Rings. Yet, if taken literally, it's almost impossible to explain consistently and completely. And I have pages and pages of notes, but I'm not going to beat up on this beloved scene sensibility all day, which hardly seems to be a good faith approach to Zack Snyder's intentions. I like his explanation from a 2011 IO9 interview on Sucker Punch. Quote, for me, and I know it's having your cake and eating it too, but I start the movie on purpose with her on a stage and I say, okay, this is a show and all the rules for the movie are up for grabs. But I try to give you enough rules that you can latch onto something. But I don't want those rules to get in the way of the intent of the scene. It's like Moulin Rouge, where it's a musical and the exact rules don't apply, but enough of them do that the world's still consistent. I didn't want it to get in the way of things that are awesome. End quote. So the rule of awesome reigns over this scene and honestly the entire film, but it's framed in a way where we might take some of those anachronisms, inconsistencies, and errors as a feature, not a bug. Just as Sucker Punch starts as a show, this section of the film is a story, a myth, a legend. The scene is, in a sense, prehistoric, before the advent of history or written record-keeping. This isn't just my assessment, this is what Hippolyta says. Show her the darkness before the daylight of history. So the mural tells the story of something before the written word, and that's what Diana learns from. From what I've learned, there are things from another universe. 
In other words, it all comes from under the temple. She isn't recalling a curriculum from the island, which incidentally shows how deep Amazonian grudges go. They don't share with Diana a moment of triumph, cooperation, and unity with the other. She isn't taught the purpose of the cage or warned of the coming threat while growing up on the island. Doubtless, she had asked, but they kept it from her like they did her origins or the godkiller's sword. And yet they do indoctrinate her with their prejudices against the Atlanteans. This kind of selective storytelling and editing of information, of course, isn't unique to the Amazons, but of particular relevance here because the mural is under their temple and presumably told primarily from their perspective and storytelling style. Returning to the prehistoric point, the mural features a writing system that hadn't been invented yet, and the Ionic columns of the temple trace back to the 6th century BC. For historical context, the Age of Hero predates the pyramids, and cuneiform had just been developed. In terms of technology, the invention of the wheel and the domestication of the horse weren't that long ago, and so the story of the Great Defiance must have been passed by oral tradition for hundreds, if not thousands of years, before it was committed to writing on the walls of a hidden chamber locked inside a secret vault. Depending on who is imagining the imagery, that might account for some of the anachronisms, like battle axes invented around 400 AD, horned helms, advanced metallurgy, and an overemphasis on swords, the modern impulse to compress and contemporize our ancient stories out of context is something that storytellers have always done. In our Grail series, we mentioned how the historical author would have predated Shining Armor and even the word knight. Nonetheless, they are affixed in fiction. Similarly, Vikings never wore horned helms, but that has become a common convention. There's no documentation or archaeological evidence that the Vikings wore horned helmets. Instead, the helmets show up hundreds of years later, thanks to the German composer Richard Wagner and the very operas that Bugs Bunny parodied. This is a common conceit in folklore contemporizing the story in an ancient implausible history that can't possibly be contained in your actual centuries past. Exactly like the Volsung Saga, the Ring Cycle, the Lord of the Rings author, and all our epic myths. The Ring Cycle, Wagner's bombastic marathon four-part opera. Wagner's goal wasn't just to retell Norse legend, but to establish a new German one. They wanted their own ancient origin story, apart from Greek and Roman classical history. And in a game of history, historical telephone, the Germans wanted the Norse story to be their story. Those horns had appeared in German drawings of ancient and medieval warriors, so Wagner cut and pasted. From the 1870s on, it became storybook history. The horned helmets quickly showed up around the world, and in the end, the helmet did do something. It created a raw and beautiful image that was completely mythical. The storyteller is just engaging in the fantasy tropes of the genre, not giving an actual history lesson. It's an abject demonstration in how stories are told, preserved, what they mean, and what they do. We wouldn't afford this kind of storytelling a finding of complete historical accuracy, total precision, and accept it as absolutely literal. Instead, a story told from only one side, a story told over and over only verbally, a story enshrined and illuminated with its own agenda, may have a less than perfect retelling of events as they actually were, and more, a story intended to motivate necessary actions. As I've argued previously, this may have been part of sanitizing the past for Diana, allowing her to grow up more idealistic than the Amazons already jaded by their worldly experiences. And this is an idea and a theme that just keeps reoccurring across Zack's filmography, nested and parallel perspectives that shape our stories and their objectives. The Historical Fantasy 300 is Zack's adaptation of a graphic novel version of The Legendary Battle of Thermopylae before we even begin to scratch historical bedrock. 
Even the film itself is a story within a story, as Dilios gives a heightened recounting intended to act as propaganda to unite and stir the hearts fighting beside him. Watchmen gives us Osmandius's lie meant to unite the world in peace against a common foe through the lens of Rorschach's journal after it's partially published in The New Frontiersman. In The Legend of the Guardians, the titular legends are cast as larger than life, more historic and pristine, but upon encountering them in actual life, at first, Soren is disillusioned. The stories, they are... It's not at all like my dad told it. But by the end, he engages in the same heightened storytelling that took him on his hero's journey in the first place. <laughs> dad, the stories, they're real. You made them real, Soren. Listen to them, Soren. They want more stories. And so much could be said about Sucker Punch and Man of Steel, the stories as we dive into the mind, into our private lives, and into our pasts, paralleled to the perspectives of those on the outside looking in. Zack is fixated by this idea embodied by the Kurosawa classic Rashomon, which he cites in his approach to BVS. This is a second perspective from Man of Steel of the exact same crash that happened in Man of Steel. The idea when I was designing the sequence was to show this kind of Rashomon-like other version of the same scene from another point of view, you know, from Bruce's point of view, where you see one story and then you see the same story from another perspective and how those could be two entirely different points of view. And even in the death of Robin yet to be. In the post-apocalyptic world, there was a sequence that we had talked about where on the night before this big mission in the burned out future world, Joker and Batman are kind of at the last supper, if you will, because they know that they have one chance to do this, to get it right. Well, Batman and Joker together tell the story of the death of Robin. And it's kind of this, we were going to try and do it almost like this kind of Rashomon, like double perspective, super complicated back and forth with images and everything. So yeah, something like that would have been cool. A story of a single event from varying perspectives is a theme threaded throughout his filmography, often exploring how the telling shapes the tale and how the hearing happens to unite. The Spartans in 300, the nuclear powers in Watchmen, the owls against the pure ones in Legends, the girls to escape in sucker punch, and so on. These all ask us, does a story need to be factually true and accurate to have power in our lives? Or are they true in a different sense and on another level where their power actually lies? The dual meaning of myth is no accident. You need to keep that in a mythological sort of realm in order to let it be mythological. You know, as soon as you try to sort of think about it in practical terms, sure, you can spin yourself out with it. But I think if you keep it in mythological terms, it's really fun and there's a lot of great lessons. So It's something I can't wait to explore for this story and more. So what does this story say? Well, that's another episode. But I've rambled on long enough. So thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please share the show and subscribe. I'm Doc, signing off. See you next time. Answer, son. 
Alright, so sorry for such an abrupt ending, but the original recording was already record length and still just barely scratching the surface. But this episode nearly never came out due to all the web conferencing we do these days, which has the unfortunate side effect of switching your recording device. Yeah, that's right. Imagine rolling up your sleeves, getting ready to edit after spring break, only to find that you've recorded everything using that tinny integrated webcam Mike, by accident. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So I ran through it all again, but I lost the ad libs and the life of the first recording, and I just kind of rushed to get it done. And there's only so much that you can do after coming back to something for a while that ended up eating into my editing time. So this isn't as iterated or red teamed the way that I would have wanted it. But honestly, I'm ready to move on to the heroes and the themes instead of explaining the enemies. I'll probably come back and supplement this as I see fit. But with this great gift of so much vision, it's just funny that this the fandom that are just like you can't make enough movie i challenge you to make me go to the bathroom like yeah. try it. you want to wolf down the entire feast all at once tonight everyone gets to just get their knife and fork out and carve off some big chunks of justice league the banquet table is set so I've got millions of footnotes, caveats, disclaimers, personal and production notes, but let's just pace ourselves, take our time, chew our food, savor, and appreciate it. I may move some of those end notes into a separate brief someday, but to close us out, let me just summarize our Q&A, because we covered so much ground, and it's a lot of material, I get it. And just a reminder, this isn't claiming canon, but instead offering a plausible possibility. As always, the right to revise is reserved. <laughs> All right, so what genre is Justice League? Epic space opera, superhero fantasy. Is it as realistic or grounded as the earlier films? No, it takes an approach that's closer to the comic book genre. Is the film perfect? Beyond the truism, it's less perfect than the previous films, in my opinion. Is Zack satisfied? Yes, he's filled with gratitude and says he has no regrets. Is logic the right lens for analysis? It's a lens that yields rewards if pursued in good faith, but the film isn't intended to be taken as literally as the previous ones. It's still incredibly layered in other regards. Didn't Zack explain this or that? You shouldn't always cede your entire experience of art to its author, and as a collaborative work, there are other artists involved with their own independent insights too. Yeah, but Zack said, sure. But he's also changed his mind before, retconned things, and even contradicted things before as well. So weigh his words as valuable, not infallible. And incidentally, the same holds true for tradition. It's persuasive, but not controlling. Didn't Diana lie to that little girl? Don't be a bad faith, logical formalist. Was Diana wrong about the indestructibility of the boxes? Not in terms of their viable options. Couldn't they have explored other options? Only at the expense of their Superman plan with a clearer upside. Why did the boxes die? It seems they weren't as defended as during the Defiance, among other factors. How did Desaad know that they were destroyed? New gods can silently dialogue with the boxes. How long did it take the boxes to awake and send for Steppenwolf? 
about a month or so. Do the Amazons know about Superman? They don't know why the box awoke, so no. Why didn't the box reach out to Darkseid directly? He had new coordinates since his last known location. Can boxes reach out to a party on intention alone? No, they need coordinates. Can coordinates be conveyed only physically by the boxes? No, the old ways scene shows that they're transmissible even if the boxes have been destroyed. Why did it take Steppenwolf a month to arrive? We don't explicitly know. Either it took that long to find him, transmit the codes, and or prepare to invade Earth or leave his last conquest. Is it possible to navigate to somewhere without coordinates for the first time? Yes, the old ways. Would navigation be as easy as recording the coordinates then? Not necessarily. CP versus NP complete issues. Can you use a boom tube as much as you want? Steppenwolf doesn't, so there are likely limitations. Why don't they use boom tubes to capture the scientists or bring them to the stronghold? Likely, those limitations. Why did the Amazonian box stay awake? The other safekeepers seemed stronger, more magical, and more connected than the isolated Amazons. It may have been gathering observations as well. Do the boxes have personality? They exhibit at least loyalty and fear. Are Apocalyptians omniscient? No, that's what the status reports are for. Can Apocalyptians high lie or deceive? Yes, we see several examples. Do Apocalyptians want to win at all costs? No, they subordinate victory to other interests. What are some of those interests? Cultural considerations like honor, rank, reputation, a commitment to melee weapons and doomsday devices with little in between. What are some examples of culture? Well, they stand on ceremony a lot while talking, they brag and they boast, they bow and scrape and grovel before superiors. They are warlike, brutal, and pursue proximity to power. With their tech level, couldn't they just do this or that? They're honor-bound and culturally conditioned not to. Is the Armada Darkseid's only option? No. Are there other mother boxes? Yes, but they're rare ancient artifacts, not commonplace and replaceable. But wouldn't they have used them or Steppenwolf suspected something if they weren't used? No, because of their rarity and his standing as exiled. Doesn't Darkseid want the anti-life equation? Why didn't he help Steppenwolf? He wants Steppenwolf to fail, so he isn't a competitor for the ALE or an ally that takes away from the story of Darkseid's revenge, suggesting that Darkseid could only win with a mix of the new ways, instead of winning entirely on the old. What does the anti-life equation do? It's the key to controlling all life and will throughout the multiverse. Doesn't the unity turn all who live into servants of Darkseid? Yes, on a planetary scale. Are you sure there's more mother boxes? Given their value, Darkseid would have reacted more strongly to their capture or loss if there were no others. And extrinsic evidence has Darkseid boom tubing into the Batcave even after the earthbound boxes are destroyed, indicating that he still has other mother boxes. Why doesn't Darkseid send those extra boxes to Earth again? Darkseid wants to win in the old ways to avenge his loss by the old ways. The covert use of the unity without a war is a new way developed in response to his shameful loss that time. Are there any differences between the old and new ways? Yes, the old required a massive handicap match on a mutually agreed upon battlefield using melee weapons with all your assets out in the open, and the new ways allow for asymmetric hit-and-run tactics, intelligence gathering, projectile weapons, hidden 
preparations, and fighting from a defensive stronghold, among other differences. Why doesn't Diana use a gun? She loves peace and isn't interested in updating her war-making skills. Were the boxes used to conquer from the beginning of their billion years? It doesn't look like it. Darkseid's fame seems to be tied to his more recent reign. If boxes had been used that way from the beginning without restraint, there wouldn't be much of a multiverse left. What were those restraints? We don't know. It could be a precursor culture that wasn't as warlike, or it could be cosmic guardrails like New Genesis, Oa, or other entities keeping Apocalypse in check until now. The anti-life equation on Earth seems to indicate the intentions of a greater unseen power perhaps still in play, and Darkseid's reputation seemed to be of his own making. Thus, relatively recent, his name, specifically, is feared. Well, how do you know he hasn't been conquering for a billion years? Because one world every 10,000 years is actually almost a benevolent pace. For some sense of scale, the oldest known mammalian life forms are only about 200 million years old compared to the box's billion years. Where did Diana get her second sword? Through the application of her archaeological skills. And what does this have to do with the boxes? The swords serve as an analogy for the disposition of the mother boxes, in the same way an ancient artifact can be found guarded by its creators or scattered out in the world requiring effort to discover and recover. Something that is rare and valuable, but also not entirely unique. Ah, so this explains Steppenwolf not connecting the mother box to the Defiance, right? You got it. There are boxes to be discovered, either lost by precursors or by previous failed conquerors. Didn't Steppenwolf say the defenders always fall? He's talking about his own record, not all Apocalyptean conquerors. His perfect record is exceptional and would have put him at the side of Darkseid. There are others who have lost before to protectors like Lanterns, who've made a name for themselves among the Apocalypteans. How does Steppenwolf conquer worlds while in exile? It's unclear since conquest seems to mean many things. Using the unity, terraforming, converting parademons, occupation, or annihilation. Steppenwolf would need differing degrees of support to accomplish these differing definitions of conquest. Mother boxes may be required in some cases, or a world engine, or armada in other cases, and sometimes a sustained stay, and logistics. The latter seems out of character for Steppenwolf, which is why we're shown a facilitator like Dasad. Why wasn't the location of Earth preserved? It actually probably was, but protected as proprietary information in order to prevent access by competing usurpers to the throne. Then why couldn't Darkseid access it on Apocalypse? He was out of it on the edge of death. He obviously recovered. Why didn't he access it then? While he was out, his defeat and incapacitation was the perfect moment to seize the throne from his father, lacking his greatest warrior, heir, and successor. Darkseid's minions, safekeeping the location of Earth, were lost in the civil war fighting for his father. By the time Darkseid had come to, there was no one left who could give him the coordinates. How do you know that there was a war for succession? New gods are immortal, and yet somehow Darkseid has taken the throne, and others came for it even as he sat upon it, only to be cut down by Steppenwolf. So intrinsically, we know that violent succession is a thing. Extrinsically, Zack told us so on Vero. Why was Darkseid searching for anti-life? To make 
all of existence his and as a super weapon to overthrow his father, who already seemed unstoppable through the use of the unity. Did anybody know what he was looking for? No, the anti-life was his secret weapon against his father. Why did Darkseid lose on Earth? Largely due to cultural constraints to prove oneself in a specific ceremonial battle not optimized for success, but mostly for show. If approached without such constraints, the Apocalypteans clearly would have won. Given that the ALE was on Earth and the Earthlings weren't capable of space travel yet, why didn't Darkseid's armada regroup in the solar system? Darkseid was out of it and uncertain to recover and unable to override his father's standing order that they should retreat if defeated. If Darkseid was awake, would he have stayed in the system? Only if Darkseid believed that he would recover. If he was going to die, there's no reason to stay and he might recover better on Apocalypse. Why would there be a standing order to retreat? Losing seems to be unusual and in a rare example of caution, better to preserve the armada than risk a total loss. If the anti-life equation is Darkseid's secret, why is it so well known? After Darkseid ascended to the throne, he publicized his loss and the ALE to institutionalize changes, new ways, which would prevent the past defeat and similar attempts at overthrow. How does the story of the Defiance do that? Tactically, the new ways are a bit smarter. And if anyone were to discover the ALE, they'd have to report it to Darkseid. They couldn't claim it for themselves without all their underlings disclosing the betrayal to Darkseid. Why did Darkseid exile Steppenwolf for slaying usurpers coming for his throne? To avoid his father's fate, Darkseid made an example out of Steppenwolf that anyone participating in the Game of Thrones will be punished. Those slain are already dead, so he could only punish Steppenwolf. This sends a message that there will be no tolerance for succession fights, even in the name of loyalty. After all, that is exactly what Darkseid had done to his father while searching for the ALE. Sending away his right hand also prevents Steppenwolf from being perceived as a weakness, should he ever fail or fall, and Darkseid still gets the benefit of his service through the debt to be paid. Extrinsic evidence tells us that Steppenwolf is related, and blood often end up as pawns in wars of succession, which is yet another reason to send him away. All well and good, but doesn't this contradict Diana saying it was lost due to a fading view and infinity? You can interpret what she's saying broadly so that it all still fits in. Alternatively, you can impeach her explanation as hearsay that the defenders of Earth wouldn't have known. In the latter case, the story is unreliable, so why would they rely upon it? Because ultimately we are are moved by myths all the time. Well, what's the meaning behind this myth then? <laughs> well, that's another episode. That's it for now, my friends. Until next time. The other day I was thinking that I tend to overthink things, and then I was like, do I though? <laughs> all right, I'll, I'll take it. That's cool. This is a nice audience. Thank you. I'm on an overcrowded train, fighting an overcrowded brain And all these bags under my eyes hold up my compromise And maybe I should bail on everything, anything Did you not learn anything in school? Could have played by the rules, could be happy in a different way Struggling with the London rent, they said it'll be hard Now I know what they meant, I lose sleep, head stuck in the cereal bowl But I'm here for the music, I know distracted Can I say what I mean? Can I mean what I say? Why can't I figure out how I feel when I wake up every day? I face everything 
the same old logic Overanalyzing everything is tragic And maybe some things they will never make sense So I tackle it all, but I'm not making a dent, no son. 